This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning. It is Sunday, June 9th, and good Chodesh. You know, it's Thomas, as you mentioned earlier. Not sure what's good about it this past day, but, you know, it's a nice summer day in New York. Chilly, um, but gorgeous. Um, today's topic uh, in the halachic process is continuing the subject we raised last week on tradition and Masora. And today's going to be a little bit more primary text uh, that we had last week when we read through J.J. Schachter's article. Um, but we're also going to spend a lot of time trying to deal with the logic behind the role of Misorah in the halachic process and the role of an inherited tradition. Uh, I'll begin with a story I heard uh, in Rav Tenler Shear. I mean, this, well, I shouldn't say this is an actual story that happened when I was in Rav Tenler Shear. So it's a Rav Tenler story. Where one Pesach must have been either 98 or 99. Someone came out with a stringency that said, Matzot need to be brown. And Ruf Tandler was credibly critical about it, calling it stupid. And I said, you know, I don't get it. Like, you know, this is a, you know, Chumrah that came out. Like, why are you saying that this is stupid? What about all of the other stringencies that came up, you know, throughout, you know, Jewish history? Like, you're harping on this one. You know, you go back through, you know, the sources, you find them popping up all over the place. And he said, you know, you go back, you know, for some of these, you know, customs that we have in these practices we keep, we've been doing them for, let's say, 150, 200 years. I don't know who started it. I don't know why. But I'm trusting that if we've been doing it for so long, there must have been a good reason why it was started. And there must be a good reason why we keep it. These people are saying that matzo need to be brown. I know for certain are idiots and should be, you know, dismissed accordingly. So... You know, that, that certainly is, you know, an approach of how many people will follow these things of there's an assumption that if there's something that we've been, you know, doing, you know, for a while, it's been ingrained in part of our tr- tradition, there's some intrinsic merit to it. On the flip side, um, are you familiar with the website despair.com? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, for those who don't know, despair.com sells uh, subversive inspirational messages. Um, and I got a what something for my dad that's actually hanging in his apartment now they have one on tradition and the picture is of running of the bulls in spain the caption is tradition just because we've always done it this way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid which if you know my father you can understand that he was most appreciative of that um but it does you know pose and you know a, an important I guess, dichotomy here of how important tradition is, but also accepting that tradition can at times be flawed. And how are we supposed to reconcile these? Um, There was an article that was uh, circulating around the internet last week about how, yes, it is the Masorts of tradition, and of course we do it, with absolutely no no appreciation or no exposition of when and how does tradition change, or set up any sort of rules to how Judaism can ever adapt. Because without those rules, what have you really got? What makes one change okay and one change not? And we'll explore those logical questions towards the end once we at least, you know, lay some groundwork. And then we can go through a little bit more of the logic in terms of what are certain assumptions you make and what are going to be some consequences of those assumptions. Yeah. I'm just thinking maybe maybe the answer is the whole thing is essentially Darwinian evolution. That is uh, things pop up for an, an irrational reason. Yeah, and and they just last. You know, that, I'll tell you someone who made that argument. And I got into a fight. This goes back two thousand three ish. There was a rabbi. Well, he's now a rabbi. Then at the time, I don't know if he had smicha, but he was either a rabbinical student or just finishing up. Who wrote a P, uh, two articles in YU's Beit Yitzchak Journal, and one of them got a lot of press in the Jewish blogster at that time. Because he was basically arguing that the uh, biblical prohibition of lo tirzach, do not murder, doesn't apply to non-Jews. Meaning, he argued in this, uh, now to explain that Beit Yitzchak is the, uh, it's, I, I can't even call it an academic journal. 
but it, it's a, a journal of articles in Hebrew published by the rabbinical students or published by REITs. Uh, rabbinical students of Yeshiva, or it's published by the rabbinical school, I should say, of Yeshiva University. So you've got Rosh Yeshiva who posts students, post alumni, post. Very few people like actually sit and read this. For the most part, it's in Hebrew, and not many people actually read Hebrew. You're not missing much. The Hebrew from most of it's just terrible. Or people are writing up like, "Hey, you know, here's an idea I had from Sheer," and like write it up. It, it rarely will something of significance come up unless it's controversial. Uh, one person made a bit of controversy because in a footnote he referred to Grosh Lieberman. So there was a whole big scandal about that when I was there. So anyway, so this particular person wrote that piece and people were annoyed about it. And that made the rounds in the blog sphere. People ignored his other piece, which was a lot more disturbing, in which he wrote as follows. Well, there are a lot of opinions, opinions on, you know, what halacha ought to be. So how do we know? So his argument was that God is intrinsically part of the Mesorah. God would not allow the Jewish people to make the mis- a mistake, which means whatever the normative practice amongst from Jews happens to be, that de facto demonstrates what God wants us to be doing. And I, it was something I systematically dissected, you know, myself as a response. That would be kind of your argument of like the fact that this is one out itself demonstrates the validity and that would be an important distinction to make here, meaning the fact that everyone does this, well, then it must be correct. But on what grounds would it be correct? The victor goes the spo- like history is written by the victor. Victor goes the spoils because this is what we've always done. This now becomes halachic, right? That was you know this particular rabbi's approach, but he inserted God into the equation that God is directing uh, halachic history, for lack of a better idiom. Right? In which case, though, you're pretty much giving an argument of Mordechai Kaplan or Solomon Schechter, right? of Catholic Israel. You're taking Catholic Israel to its logical conclusion, Judaism is civilization, where what we do has intrinsic value because of, you know, that, that's just what it is, right? Because it's what we happen to do. And you know, that, those lead into some other really phenomenal questions, such as, you know, what was the purpose behind these things? The positivist historical school, was it just a secular way of getting people to keep more mitzvot? What does that mean in terms of religion? Because you can go through the rituals, but if there's no spiritual significance, can you technically call it a religion? These are all really fun questions that, you know, I wrote a bit about in Chicago and like we were trying to argue what a religion is. But anyway, point is this. You could argue that as what we do is by nature correct because this is what we've won out. But then you would, you know, you'd still have to justify where do you get that from? What is the basis for it? No, I would say it's not necessarily correct in some objective way. It's, it's just, it's useful for this community at this time. It, you know, it could be like modes of dress. There's nothing right. intrinsically correct about wearing a tie, but we do it. Okay, that's... In which case, you've almost uh, profaned, and I mean this, not me... Yeah. negative sense, but you've, and secular is a bad term, you've desacralized what it means to have a tradition. In that, do it or don't do it. doesn't really matter. Well, not everything was dictated by God. That's what we're going to now, you know, start to get, you know, describing of what does it mean to have a tradition. So the word masorah has the root of masar, something that is given over, something that is handed over. Section one, want to hammer home the essential role of tradition. In the sp- Put it bluntly, even before we get to a source, any amount of knowledge that anyone has is through tradition. Someone, well, I shouldn't say that, because certain things people um, will experience firsthand and can figure out on their own. So let me rephrase that. Anyone who's gone to schooling of any sort has learned from tradition. You go to a school, your teacher tells you things, you read stuff in books, you assume that they are correct because you have either no reason to assume otherwise, or in some cases you will be penalized somewhat harshly for contradicting other people, right? Your parents give you a tradition for how to live, right? They teach you things. In fact, the very first verse that will come back to, well, that a lot of the Jewish approach and tradition um, is based on is Proverbs 1.8. Listen to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. 
right? Anyone who was raised by anyone learned for someone helped give over knowledge. Parents give over knowledge, if not raw data of like such and such a thing happened at a certain point of history. You teach how to live, either by rules or by example. All of these are misurad. This is how people learn. There's, you are learning from someone else who is giving over information. That is the only way, again, it's not the only way humans learn, but it's the main way humans learn. Any human or human interaction learns from someone giving over something to them, certainly anyone who's had any book education. Okay, so it's impossible to divorce that from knowledge. And there's an implication that what people are telling you is in fact correct, is in fact accurate, which isn't always the case. Were that the case, we would never advance. We only advance because things that we were told, we challenge things. Right? So, yeah. I just want to continually distinguish between accurate and correct Mm -hmm. and customary. We'll explain that a little bit, too, in terms of what gets incorporated. All right? So, well, you know what? Let's even handle that now. The reason why, I mean, you remember we gave the class on minhag, which is stuff that people do. And thank you for bringing that up, because it'll be important to make that distinction. In my head, I make a distinction between a minhag, which, even if we use it as a colloquialism, because remember we saw in the Gemara distinguishes between halacha minhag and nohag. Halacha are the things that you teach, you know, publicly. Minhag is more indicative of, you know, a practice, but it's something that you tell people privately as private instruction. And minhag is just what people do, and you don't even tell people necessarily to follow. But let's say you just use minhag as custom. There's something different about tradition, where view tradition as an inherited custom. Because a minhag can be anything. A community can set up its own minhagim. Many communities do. Right? And, I, and they may not call it a minhag. Um, I'm trying to give one example here. Um, ah, you, uh, yeah, I, you know, go back to them for other things. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example of Minog. Like whether you dive in Nusach Svart or Nusach Ashkenaz. I set up a new shul, right? Let's say I'm going to Wyoming, right? Probably not too many Jews who live in Wyoming. I want to go out and set up a shul there. I choose what Nusach the shul is going to be. I'm setting up the Minogamakom, right? So that's a Minog. There seems to be in at least contemporary, not even contemporary Judaism, but it is true in contemporary Judaism, not only based on the story that I related from Rav Tenler, of greater significance to an inherited custom, but we saw this with the Ba'alei Tosafot. They gave deference to not just Minhag, but Minhag Akadumim, like the older, older customs. There's something significant about if it happened a long time ago, and it's something that's been part of our inherited tradition, there, according to at least the Ba'alei Tosafot, there is an, uh, an intrinsic religious value, and according to some sources that we saw in the Bali Tosafot, the intrinsic, not only religious, I'd even say religious and halachic value, is such that it can supersede what happens to be written explicitly in the Talmud. Right? And we saw examples of that in the Tosafot here. So let's go to a couple more sources. So uh, let me do the uh, second one because, you know, Mishnah Avot 1 1 is what starts us off in terms of the whole authority, rabbinic authority, really begins with Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. Moshe gets the Torah from Sinai, Um Sarah Yoshua, passes it over to Joshua, Yoshua is a kingdom, and what's that operative word? Misarah. Right? He's passing it on, the word Misorah, and then it goes through, I mean, this is a really shortened version, if you recall this year that we gave Maimonides' introduction, he gives you a much longer list, the basis for any rabbinic law is transmission of Torah from one generation to another generation, going all the way back up ostensibly, Moses getting it from God. But it's passed down. So there's something about the process itself that is significant. Okay? Uh, Gemara Psachim 50b. Uh, the citizens of Beishan uh, or Baishan. Uh, Beishan, it's not, as opposed to Beit Sha'an, which is a different place. We're accustomed not to go from Tyre to Sidon on the coast of Palestine. Uh, Friday was market day at Sidon, on the eve of the Sabbath. 
their children went to Rabbi Yochanan and said to him, For our fathers this was possible, for us it is impossible. Said he to them, Your fathers have already taken it upon themselves. As it is said, Hear, my son, the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the teaching of thy mother. So here we have a Gemara Mpsachim. Um, there's discussion about like what to do on Erev Shabbat. Now, certain market realities changed. The concern was, don't go traveling so close to Shabbat. You might, you know, come to violate Shabbat. It wasn't some uh, to use Rav Soloveitchik's H's idiom. It wasn't what an Arab Shabbat, Shomer Shabbat, Shomer Arab Shabbat Jew is supposed to do. So we got that meaning. You don't want to just like you know keep rushing into Shabbos and you take some note. And he said, wait a second. You know, for our fathers, like who had this practice, they were able to do so. Like they could afford not to. But if this was the market day in this place, we need to do this for a living. We need to go out. And Rav Yochanan said no. Why? Because your fathers already Your fathers already accepted this on you and you can't change it. Right? So here is a source where the earlier custom, the early, I'm sorry, if I'm, I'm using the term precisely, I'll try to correct myself. The earlier practice was not only established, but established in such a way that even though it wasn't a matter of a legislative decree, but the, or there's no indication there was a legislative decree here. Well, it's hard to say here. The way that it, well, no, that's not true. It says, Nahog Doesn't the language here is that it wasn't even an established minhag? It uses that term nahag, right? This is just what they did. And here, Rav Yochanan is imposing um, on its significance that they can't even change what they're, the practice. Not a halacha, not an established minhag, just what people happen to have done. Why? Because don't deviate Shema Bani Musar Vicha Vyaltitosh Torati Mecha. Another Gemara that keeps up, comes up repeatedly is the Gemara in Beitza 4b and why we keep two days of Yom Tov. So in the early times, they used to light bonfires, but on account of the mischief of the Samaritans, the rabbis ordained that messengers go forth. Now, if the mes- mischief of the Samaritans ceased, we would all observe only one day. And even during the Samaritan mischief, where the messengers arrived, only observed one day. But now that we are well acquainted with the fixing of the moon, why do we observe two days? Because they sent word from Palestine, give heed to the customs of your ancestors which have come down to you. For it might happen that the government might issue a decree and will cause confusion in ritual. So here's the source of Hisarubi min hagavotechem be careful with the custom of the fathers in your hands. Now, again, this is different than just plain minhag in that this is an inherited custom. So you might reasonably think, well, you know, they did it for a certain reason. Reason no longer applies. We should be able to get rid of it, just like we, Balitos wrote fine saying with a bunch of other halachot. Reason's no longer there. I said, no. There was a reason why this was set up. And here it doesn't even say that the reason was irrelevant. It's sort of hammering home the possibility that there's a reason why this was instantiated. There's a reason why people still do this, so that you keep the law eventually. There still is a, you know, there seemed to have still been a concern that the system would break down. And then what? Rosh Chodesh is crucial for the entire Jewish calendar. Right? You know, whether or not the whole, you know, when you keep Yom Tov, and that's why we have two days of Yom Tov. It's a pretty big deal. Right? So here again, it's not, there's something about just inheriting what they did. The fact that it could go off again seems to be secondary, because you could say, well, we'll come up with other contingencies. But he's a Rubim in Hakabotechem Biyadechem implies that there is an intrinsic ethic to what your parents or, you know, the way that they practice Judaism that is not only worth keeping, but is something that you're almost expected to keep. Even if the reasons behind it, the rationales behind it, might not apply. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering, uh, I was very taken with an article by Dewey on Darwin's influence on philosophy, Mm -hmm. that up until Darwin... Uh, the, the feeling was the world is declining, steadily declining, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's certainly true in in, in traditional Judaism. Is it? Depends where you are. Uh, and the how Rishonim, you define it. 
were were wiser and smarter and closer to the source. Ah, than that you mean. So Nikola Doro, that generations go in a downward yeah, cycle. I mean, that, that happened with, with Slifskin's article on the size of an olive. On the flip that, side, uh, you also have Yiftach Bedaro Kishmol uh, uh, Bedaro. Mm. Yiftach in his generation was like Shmuel in his generation. Who is better, Shmuel? Does that mean that you have to go through a linear decline? No. Now, when this linear decline started, who knows? There's also no way of evaluating that. But in effect, yes. Meaning, by always saying that the people before us constantly knew better, right? And therefore, you, I mean, you might even, I mean, I would say that's a little bit different if you say, Rubi Nagabu as much as you are adding on another reason of why you ought to trust the people who came before you. Because that's what a lot of this comes down to. Some will use the idiom, Emunat Chachamim. Do you have faith in them? But the question is also, what does it mean to have faith? That their decisions were okay? It's quite conceivable that, you know, if you would resurrect some of Rishon or some great posek who died in the past 150 years today, very possible they might change their minds on a whole bunch of stuff. Right? So this also gets to, as I used the idiom earlier, of, you know, going fishing. Like the historian... You know, it's like going fishing, but it all depends on what types of tools you have and what types of things that you pick out from the tradition. We'll talk a little bit about that in the second section at the end when we try to go through a logical progression. What I'm trying to get done in this first section is to demonstrate that for Hazal, at least in the Gemara, I'm showing that there seem to be sources that put a very high premium on the practices of earlier generations. Not just... even if you want to say different than a regular minhag of a regular custom, there seems to be something additionally significant about a custom that was inherited. Or, a, for lack of a better term, a well-established practice that was passed down that deals with the details of how do you observe certain mitzvot. That, uh, I would say, I don't want to say go beyond the law, but how, basically, the practical details of how you apply the law. Uh, take Gemara and Ta'anit 28b. <clears throat> For Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Yehotzadak, on 18 days in the year, the individual worshiper completes the Hallel. And they are the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles, the eight days of Hanukkah, the first day of Passover, and the festival of Pentecost. But in the diaspora, the Hallel is completed on 21 days, and they are the nine days of the Feast of Tabernacles, um, the eight days of Hanukkah, the first two days of Passover and the two days of Pentecost. Rav once came to Babylonia and he noticed that they recited the Hallel on the new moon. At first he thought of stopping them, but when he saw that they omitted parts of it, he remarked, it is clearly evident that this is an old ancestral custom with them. Atana taught the individual... I should, yeah, take off the last line, that's... I mean, we use the source elsewhere, but this last line's oh, right. sort of superfluous yeah. here. Main thing is this last one, in Yana de Yoma, right? Literally here, you know, Rosh Chodesh, we, uh, you know, many places say hala. I happen not to with... Uh, I happen to say it without a bracha or robin, but whatever. Point is here, they were saying hala when they, you know, ostensibly shouldn't have, and... Rav was about to stop him when he saw they were doing it differently. He said, "Ah, oh, they must have gotten it right." Right, and we also have other sources that seem to think of like he may not neviim him, neviim him. That there seems to be just even being part of the tradition, there seems to be something that's intrinsically guarding you for something, right? And in turn, we need to guard it of this inherited tradition. My point is, in this first section, there are rabbinic sources that again, put a very primary level of importance on Misorah, which is really essential for any form of knowledge. Because, you know, uh, anything that you know, or at least would go to school for, that you have to be taught by a teacher, necessarily implies trusting that that teacher knows what they're talking about. Or, you know, someone, one, I, I called it as a guttle problem, someone else called it to me a guru problem. Uh, and we'll have a separate chair on, like, how to deal with, you know, what is a guttle type thing. Um, but it's worth mentioning now, when you go to a teacher, someone teaches you something, how do you know that person's right? You don't, because you don't know the information. You're going to have a certain bias, though, from that first person who taught you, right? Because that's going to be ingrained in like, oh, this is it. And this comes up a lot when, you know, I encounter Ba'alei Teshuvah, people who didn't have a Jewish education, start studying for the first time, or converts who study with someone who's exposed to Jews will say, well, excuse me. 
I thought, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, here's what the text says. And it's a very jarring experience. Because whenever you go for instruction, there's a huge amount of trust that the person knows what they're talking about. And there are plenty of incredibly crazy people out there in universities who are spouting stuff that might be not just wrong but harmful. And students might not have any way of knowing, well, is any of this true? And I don't, by true, I don't just mean are they you know, making irresponsible statements. But people can also say data that's incorrect. Sometimes it's malicious, sometimes it's not, right? Maybe, you know, someone built a career off of data that was later shown to be a forgery, right? There's no way for you to know that. There has to be a lot of trust involved there. Without that trust of the Misorah, not only does the tradition fall apart, but really the entire religion falls apart because you've got no method of communicating the religion to anyone else. What does any of this mean? How are you supposed to do any of this? That's all tradition, okay? But... Leads us to the other side of the equation. Is adherence to tradition absolute? Or to put it another way, when can or should one break from tradition? Is it even possible? Because if you're not supposed to, like, is it, you're never supposed to deviate. Can you? If so, when? How is this supposed to work? Does, do we have indications that such a thing can happen in the Talmud? Absolutely. Gemara and Shabbat 44a. Um, has a discussion about when certain lamps can be moved. I don't want to get into the discussion now because it gets too off topic. What's important here is a line, the line that I underlined here is Amar Abai Rebbe Eliezer Rebbe Shimon Savar Leikavu Bechada Ufaligala Bechada. On this particular issue, Rebbe Eliezer, the son of Shimon, agreed with his father on one point and disagreed with him on another. Now, ostensibly, he studied with his father. His father would represent his tradition. This would be, you know, the Musara Vicha. And yet he disagrees with him. Strange. How could such a thing be possible? The answer, I think, is pretty much... I, I think there is a simple answer. But it's an answer that we gave similar to Minhag. In that traditions are fine, but they cannot violate Jewish law. Example one, Gemar Nyavamot. Uh, it might have been assumed that this should be derived from the precept of honoring one's father and mother, for it was taught, since one might have assumed that the honoring of one's father and mother should supersede the Sabbath, it was explicitly stated, ye shall fear every man, his mother, his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. It is the duty of all of you to honor me. This is the derashan, what's the connection? The answer is simple. If your parents teach you to break Shabbat, you're not allowed to listen to them. Take the next one, Sanhedrin 85a. <clears throat> the problem was propounded to Rosh Hashanah. May one be appointed an agent by Beit Din to flagellate and curse his father? He replied, Who then permitted even a stranger to do this, but that the divine honor overrides other prohibitions? So here, too, the divine honor overrides the prohibition against smiting and cursing one's parents. Right. So let's say you have, it's an amazing halacha here, right? Because serving, like, if you're appointed by beating to do these things to your parents, which are biblically prohibited, how could that be allowed? So the Gemara asks rhetorically, wait a second, when are you normally allowed to beat people up? The only reason why Beitin is allowed to beat people up is because they're imbued with divine authority to act as agents of God to enforce God's law. So if that's where you get the authority to beat normal people up, that's where you get the authority to beat your parents up if they violate the law. Point being, the honor that you give to your parents is secondary to the honor you give Torah. Or to give another example I didn't even include here, if you only have the ability to save your parent or the person who taught you Torah, save the person who taught you Torah, because one brought you into a Lam Haba, the other brings you into a, you know, the one, sorry, one brought you into a Lam Haza, one, you know, caused you to be born, the other takes you into a Lam Haba. And finally, the, um, you know, a series of uh, Sukim and then a Derasha on following in the footsteps of parents when they're doing something incorrectly. So first you have uh, Pasuk in Devarim, Lo yamutu avot al-benim, uvanim lo yamutu al-avot, ish becheto yamutu. Parents aren't put to death for the children, nor children for the parents. Each die for their own sin. 
we also have other verses. Um, that one second, I copied the wrong. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, uh, wow, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I doubled the first one. I apologize. Well, I'll fix it up when it goes online. Right. Um, so remembers, you know, kindness for generations carries sin. Uh, remembers the sin of the father to the son and the son to the grandsons, you know, for three or four. Seems to apply that he, you know, God imposes uh, punishments, you know, from one generation to the next. You also have an Isharim Bachem Pasuk in Vayikra 2639. Those of you who will waste away in the hands of their enemies because of their sins, also because of their ancestors' sins will they waste away. Seems to be a contradiction. Does God hold you accountable for the sin of your forefathers, or doesn't he? Gemar and Sanhedrin 27b addresses this question. Are not children to be put to death for the sins committed by their parents? Is it not written, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children? There are the references to children who will follow their parents' footsteps, as it has been taught, and also in the iniquities of their parents shall they pine away with them. Meaning, if they hold fast to the wrongdo- the evil doings of their fathers. Thou sayest thus, yes, perhaps it is not so, but true even if they do not hold fast to their evil doings, what scripture says, every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Meaning it must refer to those who do not hold fast to their father's ways. Then how shall we interpret? And they shall, uh, and also their iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them as referring to those who continue in the ways of their fathers. In plain English, what this means is if you continue the sins of your fathers, then you also get a double whammy punishment, not just for what you did, but also the punishments of your parents. I include this in here simply because the things that you inherit, even from your fathers, Shema b'ni Musar Avich could very well be wrong. And then, what do you do? So, here's where we get to the logic part. People, everyone, well, let's say in the Jewish, anyone who is raised in the Jewish tradition has a Jewish tradition. According to the first half that we saw, one ought to adhere to their Jewish tradition. Is it possible for Jewish tradition to be incorrect? Well, according to the Gemaras that we saw, yes. If it's possible for a tradition to be incorrect, then it's possible for any tradition to be incorrect. And if it's possible for any tradition to be incorrect, then we have to reevaluate what does it mean to follow a tradition absolutely. Here's an example, and I've used this before, but it's worth mentioning now again too. Most Erevin that are up today do not follow the criteria defined by the Gemara. People do it because their rabbi said it was okay. Their community does it. It's their tradition to use this type of Erev. Okay. Let's say I was raised in the conservative movement. And I want to drive to Shul on Shabbos. My rabbis say it's okay. My community does it. My tradition that not only I did it, my parents my grandparents did it, or even do a reform, because reform has been around a lot longer. Right? Let's say 150 years. What's considered a long enough tradition? Right? So let's say this was my traditional approach. Now, Orthodox Jews would say, but your tradition is wrong. Now, could they turn and say to the Orthodox Jews, well, maybe your tradition is wrong. It's like, no, you have to follow and keep with tradition. But I am keeping my tradition. My tradition happens to be, you know, doing these things, right? Driving a shul on Shabbat. That's where you get into the conflict over objective law versus the inherited tradition. When the Baalei Tosafot, you know, in a sense, I don't want to say it's an innovation, but where, again, where they differentiated from Rambam is they put the inherited practice ahead of law. So if I'd be a conservative Jew and, like, you look around and say, well, how come we're not doing any of these? Then I would reconstruct the validity of our existing practice. Methodologically, that's exactly what the Baalei Tosafot did. You assume that whatever you were taught was correct, and then you work backwards to justify your existing practice. Now, this works up until a small point, in the sense that, do you assume that everything you've been taught is wrong? No. 
Does that mean you can assume that everything you've been taught is gospel truth straight from God? Also, no. And this is where it gets difficult. Because today, and it will actually, and one source that unfortunately um, you know, cut off here, I'll put it back in the source sheets, is we saw a minagavotechem biyadechem. So the Gemara in the beginning of Chulun that says, outside of Eretz Yisrael, no one really worships Avodazar anymore. Rather, minagavotechem biyadechem. Following the practices of your father can either be a sign of Kiddushah or a sign of Avodazarah, of worshiping idolatry. Because you're just doing things by rote, you're doing things out of habit. But when you do things out of habit, if your father had a bad mistake or a bad habit, very easy for you to pick up that bad habit. Doesn't mean you should. Someone whose you know, father was a chain smoker doesn't mean you should pick up chain smoking because that's what you got from your dad. Plenty of people who are listening you know, to this probably have some traits that they pick up from their parents that they wish they didn't. It's like, yeah, you know, I got like my temper from like this person. I got this from that person. Like There are things you still need to like work on and changing. Where it gets a little bit trickier here. It, like right now, I just set up a dichotomy between tradition and violating Jewish law. Even if you want to concede that where someone's tradition violates Jewish law, and this also is assuming you have a means by which you can objectively determine what is Jewish law, that you can evaluate tradition, right? Because if I'm going to say someone's tradition is wrong, I have to say on what basis, right? That, and that, okay, I mean, if I'm wrong on that point, let me know. The two, the source, the I set up a dichotomy when the two are in opposition. But what happens when they're not in opposition? Let's say something is technically permitted. No one's agree, no one's going to say that it's forbidden, but it doesn't break the tradition, and the current tradition, by keeping the way it is, doesn't violate Jewish law. So this Wednesday, we're going to be talking about partnership minyanim. Uh, women taking on more of an active role in the synagogue service than had been done in the past. You can apply this to Maharat too, the women's new ordination going on. Um, those are new things, right? Or at least things that within, uh, I hate using this, or within the Orthodox community haven't really been done before. Let's say you assume they don't violate Jewish law which very few, some people have argued that. There are enough Orthodox rabbis who have conceded that they don't violate strict letter of Jewish law, but rather the biggest objection is that they violate tradition. They violate the way we've done things. Now, not having partnership minyanim doesn't violate Jewish law. Not having maharat doesn't violate Jewish law. Meaning we've managed to keep Jewish law pretty, I don't say pretty well, but... That, those weren't the make-or-break issues. So you have something that is in the category of um, either reshut or mutar. These are things that are optional. They are neither obligatory, such that by me telling you not to do something, I'm doing something wrong, nor are they obligations that anyone can say, you have to start doing something. In those aspects, can tradition be changed and be altered? Now, this is where the history thing comes in, because it has over time. And this goes back to the, you know, Rev Tendler's story from the very beginning. My father points this out repeatedly. Things like Tashlech, right? He likes using Tashlech as an example. Not in Torah Shabbat, not in Torah Shabbat. That came from somewhere. Making changes to the davening. All those piyutim we say came from somewhere. Friends of mine at YU used to have a Lathikin minion for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We used the Machzor for Sadia Gaon, which was written before vast majority of what we say on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Uh, my father had stated many times, if he had his way, he would take out Unitana Tokev from the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur davening, because as he put it, it's a hefsek. It's an interruption in davening, which, I mean, I'm, I mean, partially he likes saying stuff like that for shock value, but, you know, his point is, someone put that in, right? Um, when... Um, when I try to be less incendiary and talk about PU team and people say, oh, we have to like keep the PU team. It's like, well, let's say it's Shabbat and I want to like, I'm davening myself, and then I start singing Yom Zemachubad. You know, it's like, well, that's kind of weird. It's like, that's what PU team are. You're inserting this poetry into the davening. Those are changes. What are considered changes? Who gets to make those changes? What are the rules of changes is unfortunately not really firmly established. 
um, my father had a, um, uh, an exchange with one particular rabbi who teaches at YU. When a question came up, the person said, that's decided on an ad hoc basis. My father said, asked, well, how do you know what's decided on an ad hoc basis? And the guy said, that too is determined on an ad hoc basis. My father said, oh, so halach is a crapshoot. And this is where the difficulties come up. If you have an objective system of halacha, which you can only get, by the way, through Misorah, then you know, you know how to gauge and how to parse these things. Additionally, if I have a Misorah, if I have a real authentic tradition, trace it back. Where did you get it from? Where did he get it from? Where did he get it from? Go all the way, weave your way back up to the roots and say, where did this thing start? And evaluate, because things have innovated. We do not follow Judaism today in exactly the way Chazal set up. Things changed. Probably the most recent change in the tradition was you know, what I like to call a code freeze by the Chassam Sofer of Chadasher Sumina Torah. Starting now, no more innovations. Oh, but what about all the innovations that came over millennia before? No more. That was the most recent innovation cutting off. I use the term code freeze. It's a term used in computer development that at a certain point, like, you're not going to fix any bug. You're just stopping the code and you're just debugging at that point. Now, okay. Anyway, but that was it. That was a fairly recent change. So to say, well, it's our tradition not to change. Well, define your tradition. How far back does it go? This problem, by the way, comes up at YU on a regular basis. A friend of mine was the Gabai there, and he had to put up with hawkers all the time like this. He said, well, this is the minhag of the YU-based midrash. And he's like, no, this is what we've done for the past two years. <laughs> this is like, you know, when people say, it's like, oh, this is like, it, things happen. Like, this is, you know, there's a very big difference between this is what we've done, this is the way we've always done it, and finding the original source. And this is where the historical revisionism comes in. And this is where you have scholars like, you know, Jacob Katz, you know, did all, you know, one of the best in history of halacha in the field. Chaim Soloveitchik did a great deal in, you know, the history of halacha, taking one or two practices and going through history to see how they evolved, how they were reinterpreted based on their existing, uh, not based on their existing circumstances. And you can see, well, what really was the tradition like? Do you say that the tradition is actually a chain that you can trace back? Or is it the information that you happen to have received through the accident of your birth and your education? And that's a really tough call there. See, I was, and I will say this, you know, pretty much everything of what I think of my approach to Judaism is through the accident of the birth of having my father as a father. If I was raised in a different culture, I would probably think about things very differently, right? But one thing I can say is everything that I've been taught from my father that he got from his teacher, you can trace back at least to the Gemara. So at least I know where it came from. But the stuff that you do, where did you get it from, right? You quote this particular rabbi, where did he get it from? Right? And if he's your source, then that means, logically, he must have been the innovator. And then you have to ask, well, what gave him the right to innovate? And this is where the system breaks down, because very few people out there engaging in halacha can articulate a clear set of rules and are willing to live by them with a shred of consistency, or at least being able to admit you know, here's an inconsistency and maybe explain why. And it's used more as doublespeak, unfortunately, than as opposed to here's how Jewish law works. And if you're going to find, well, this is how Jewish law works because this is what we do, that's already tautological. That's why I give this class and try to go through it linearly because you're always going to have to appeal to something else. If you're going to say that our tradition is valuable simply because this is our tradition, you're engaging in a circular tautology there not unlike, you know, I mean, if you're going to be honest about it, you'd say that you're a you know, student of Mordechai Kaplan, right? Or a student of, you know, Solomon Schachter. Uh, yeah, I've got a joke on this that would get me in far too much trouble. Um, but I'll hold it, so I'll, I'll take that out. Uh, but the point is, you know, if that's what it is, then you're not really following law. You're following Jewish culture. And like that, while you're a rabbinical student, the only thing that you have to say is God is an intrinsic part of your religious culture as it stands today. And there's a great deal of hubris behind it and a great deal of innovation even making that statement. And you also wind up having to deny a whole bunch of other Gemaras that contradict your sources. 
But you say, oh, of course we can contradict those sources because they're not part of our tradition. Well, there you go. In which case, the halachic model that emphasizes tradition or misora is essentially, when you reduce it, is we are right because we are right QED. And to my mind, that's not a halachic process. That's a totalitarian regime. If you think someone's wrong, they're wrong. If you want to say you're going against our tradition, that can be a true statement. You want to tell me that so-and-so is doing an innovation by, you know, putting women in a rabbinic, you know, capacity in some way. Sure. Okay. I can, from a historical perspective, well, we can argue whether or not that's even accurate because a whole bunch of other stuff goes on behind there. But certainly it's not part of our current memory. Right or not part of our historical memory. Right, we don't. Even if it might have happened a few hundred years ago, that doesn't mean that you know it's so unrelatable to us today. Might as well not have happened at all. Okay, but let's say you're even doing an innovation. Are you breaking against the current tradition that you've done? Absolutely. The next question is, what is wrong with that? In terms of why is this wrong? Why is things essential on here? Because there are a lot of changes that have cr- cropped up over the years. Stringencies count as changes too, right? Yet some count as changes and some don't. What does it mean? What are the systems? And again, can you prove it and can you demonstrate it in such a way that it doesn't get reduced to we're right because we say so? That includes, you know, dealing with, you know, even, well, this great rabbi said so. And why should we trust this great rabbi? What gave him the authority to do so? And then you keep on asking, working backwards all the questions we've been dealing with since class number one. And at some point in there, it's probably going to break. I can say that people shouldn't do it because it'll be divisive. I can give, you know, social reasons why people shouldn't do it. Can I give halachic reasons why people aren't allowed to? Or by doing so, you're violating Jewish law. That's already a separate discussion. Meaning, I mean, people have tried giving halachic arguments, but like um, over, say, women leading Kabbalah Shabbat. Uh, Rabbi Michael Broid said it was, you know, he couldn't give an actual isur. He, he, he didn't say it was forbidden, but he gave other reasons why it was no good or why it shouldn't be done. But shouldn't doesn't mean asur. And then you and I can have a different judgment call over whether or not something ought to be done or not to be done. And you could say that's an argument in psak about what might be best, but there's a very big difference in saying, you know, this is a good idea, bad idea, versus you are no longer allowed to do it. And you say deviate from the tradition, you have to ask, whose tradition? Am I deviating from your tradition? Probably, because I don't have your tradition. Or to put it another way, I get up and I say something. Someone will say, you're going against the Masora. I'm like, who's Masora? Your Masora? People who know my dad would have to say, well, I'm actually following my father's tradition of attacking your Masora. So, by definition, I'm do- doing things the way that I've been taught. Is it the way that you've been taught? No. But why do I have to follow the way that you've been taught? Shmabani Musara Vicha. Listen to the teachings of your father, not everyone else's father. And if you think that I ought to follow your opinion, then logically I would have to leave the Masorah of my father, which you would want me to do because my Masorah was wrong. But if my Masorah is wrong, how do you know your Masorah isn't wrong? See? Now, if I answered more questions or asked you more, or yeah, put more in there, <laughs> asked you more, yeah, for, I'm sorry, I'm not speaking coherently anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I, see, I don't, I don't know, uh, uh, at this point, I'm, I'm not sure what I caught from you and what I didn't, but it, so far, it sounds like <clears throat> the whole thing is, 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 is a pile of mud. Um, in some ways, yes. I'll put it this way. In, like in the real, you know, short version, there has, there is an intrinsic religious value to misora, to the content and the form. There's also an acknowledgement that not everything that you happen to receive is correct. That there is, in fact, an objective law that supersedes what you happen to have been taught. That's at least the system in the Gemara. That's not how practically people have done. But again, when we talk about the halachic process, you know, shifting back to the rabbis who made the rules of transmission were cognizant that there is room for deviation. Or to put it another way, I can argue with someone while following the same methodology. I use the example of Rambam a bit. Rambam has a halachic system that he outlines in the introduction. 
You can argue with Rambam's conclusions following the halachic tradition that he set up. Meaning, if you view tradition as a system of rules, right, you could use those rules to different ends and play by them honestly, based on the information you have, data you have, situational reality changes. And you could play by the same rules to get to a different conclusion and still say you're following the same sort of tradition. Where I think you might have had the shift is the change of tradition from the system of Torah Shabbat to the specific conclusions of exactly how you do what you do. Now, we actually saw some examples of that here, right? Um, like the Gemara that we saw in Psachim about traveling on Erev Shabbat. That would be an example of don't deviate even just from the practice that your parents, you know, started, that your fathers took upon themselves from doing, okay? Um, you also have, uh, whatchamacallit? Wait, lost my train of thought. But we also saw, um, sorry, flip over the page here, uh, Revelazar, the son of, you know, Revelazar ben Shimon, who agreed with his father on some things and disagreed with them on others. Right? Does it mean that you're never allowed to argue with your parents on matters of halach? I mean, there are ways of, you know, having a differences of opinion. Does it mean that you need to be an absolute carbon copy of it? Clearly not. And he wasn't chastised for disagreeing. He saw things differently. All right, so there could be a you know a difference between to what extent do you focus on the conclusions versus to what extent do you focus on the methodology, and you could argue that the reason why you know Rav Yochanan was so machmer here was because the people you know he might have felt that the people were just being lazy and just didn't want to do it anymore, and it could be he made a judgment call, saying yeah you know what like when it says you know their language was anenlo efsharlat it's like it's not possible for us we have to travel. On Erev Shabbat. And he said, no, keep the tradition of your fathers. What else could have gone on there? One way of approaching this Gemara, I legitimately is to say, whatever practices your parents kept, you have to continue doing. That's one plausible way of reading this Gemara, but I don't think it's tenable given the other contradictory sources. Because following that logic, if your parents didn't Avera, you're not supposed to follow it too. And technically, that would be a minog as well. You would say, well, this didn't violate Torah, but how would you necessarily know? On the other hand, you could also argue this. When it says EF Charlotte, right, it's no longer possible for us. What does it mean it's no longer possible? And that's a tricky question that rabbis deal with often. This is one of the big issues that they dealt with, you know, with conservative Judaism. How do we adjust? Is it too hard to be an observant Jew, Right. And then you've also got policy issues between, you know, people do things or um, do you automatic do you get up and you say it's OK? Meaning at the end, what I found in my own experience, people are going to do whatever they want to do. And the question is, to what extent do they justify it afterwards? I've been told that the Shkama Minyan at Bialystucker many, many, many years ago started for people who still had to work on Shabbat because if they didn't, they get fired. Uh, and apparently a bunch of Hashkamim and Yanim started that way. Does that mean that you're saying it's okay to work on Shabbat? No. Right? There's a difference between saying, you know, do what you need to do and saying it's okay and giving approbation. Maybe he thought there was a slippery slope that, you know, as long as people complain loudly enough, you can start doing things willy-nilly. And maybe that was his concern. I don't know. Hard to say. It's possible to read it in many different, in, in several different ways. But you have to be mindful of what are the consequences of your conclusion. And that if you're going to say that if there's a current practice that you've inherited that doesn't violate Jewish law and saying, well, you're not even allowed to change it simply because this is what you got stuck with, then you'd have to ask, well, that being the case, has Jewish law ever changed over time? Has anybody ever innovated at any period? And if so, what gave them at that very moment the right to do so? And if you're going to say, well, it's cultural acceptance, well, then you're ultimately defining Jewish law, not by a system of laws, but by the culture, effectively proving, you know, Solomon Schefter and Mordechai Kaplan correct. But I see that all the time in the Orthodox community, community yeah. standards. So I will say this. As law, the way that I handle stuff like this, first off, I think you're right. When I say things like community, communal standards, as for me, as long as there's a distinction between law and policy, you're on safe grounds. Just because something is permitted doesn't mean it's obligatory. 
right? Uh, analogy I give later, I, you know, I, I could set up a new minhag that everyone comes to shul wearing a pink suit. Now, with my hair, that would be horrible, right? Now, could I? Technically, yeah, but it would also be stupid, right? Similarly, I'm not going to enact, like, ridiculous stringencies here, you know, as a sign of not just community standards, because you have to know who are the people in front of you. Does this make sense for this group of people? So when you're talking about things like, you know, uh, years ago even, I was uh, doing an interdenominational program, and the question came up about women's tefillah groups. And I said, honestly, I can see starting one where none exists, and I can see stopping one, if there was one, depending on the needs of the community. If you view it on a localized level, right, what could be good for one shul could be horrible someplace else. And then you do have to worry about not just communal standards, but what is your community? Who are the people for whom you're really responsible? Certain policies that are in place in this shul would be inappropriate elsewhere, and vice versa. And I've also made no secret about that. Um, and I think that's fine. And the, the problem then is, when someone wishes to deviate, to what extent do you exclude? Right? And when I say you have to do things my way is different than saying, here's what we do here, right? That would, I, I think, be the biggest distinction that people ought to make. So I can say, well, for my community, such and such a thing is bad. Okay. Now then I can say, well, actually, I think it would be a good thing. Or people can even argue what's best for the community. Or you might even have a split in communities. How many Orthodox rules have broken away from each other over things even more stupid you know, than a real theological argument? Right? Like, well, you have your way, I'll do it my way. You know, fine. So you have your community, I have my community. Sometimes you have split. Now, yes, you have lotit go to do, shouldn't split, uh, separate to agudot, agudot. But even what that means, what's considered separation and who's doing the pushing out? If it's, well, you, you, and then it gets into other questions of how do you define community, bizman hazeh, right? Is it defined locally by shul? Is it defined by affiliation? Bigger questions. I'm more focused on the halachic implications of the must. What are the things that you have to do? Can I say that you are violating God's will when you go through a deviation from you know, certain things that other people don't do? Remember what Rambam, uh, you know, Rambam's approach from the introduction is, just because a rabbi says something is prohibited you know, out in California doesn't mean that I have to listen to him here. This is a law authority doesn't you know, bridge that. I could if I wanted to, as long as he doesn't tell me to violate Jewish law. Right? But that's where I think the answer ought to apply. If I don't like maharat, then the burden is on me to say, maharat is a bad idea. Here's why. And convince. Now, other people are going to disagree. And the, the great thing about maharat is simply, if a shul doesn't want to hire a maharat, you just don't hire a maharat. If a shul wants to hire a maharat, you will. Right? That's simple. And the communities will decide for themselves what they think is in their own best interests. And there you go. Now, that could be scary for people because, you know, there's a great deal of loss of control, you know, but rabbis aren't always trained in sociologists. And that's where you get the trust level. Meaning, if you want to, as we mentioned at the very beginning, all of Misorah is dependent on trust. Do people trust the information that's being told? Now, the answer, in a lot of respects, is no. And the question is, is it with good reason? In some cases, yeah. Like, someone asks me a halacha question. They do so because they're going to trust in some level my answer. They may not do what I say, you know, but the fact that they're even asking me to begin with means they at least trust my approach enough that it's warranting asking me a question. Some people don't even get that question. Right? Some people don't even bother asking the questions. I would sooner say that if there is a breakdown in Misorah, instead of yelling at the masses to listen to me, listen to me and do everything that we say, it's time to repair the trust that the rabbinate ought to have with the laity. And that's been broken over decades and for a whole bunch of reasons, where there's an ad usually an adversarial relationship that develops between an us versus them, as opposed to you know, what I would hopefully like to see as a real partnership you know, minion between leadership and the laity, where the rabbi assume, I mean, people hopefully assume, someone who went to rabbinical school knows more than people who don't, and is able to articulate things in a way 
that can build trust in terms of the halachic process that this person is someone you ought to rely on. Now, what does it mean for building trust? Well, the truth is that's going to matter for different people. Some people don't trust me on stuff. Fine. As long as there's you know, someone you can go to, to, to whom you do. But I think there needs to be more of a burden on the rabbinate. Uh, if I want to, can, if I want people to act in a certain way, there has to be the burden of what is the best way that I can get you to do what you, what I think is in, if not your spiritual best interests, you know, God's best interests. My father has an idiom: Are you trying to win arguments or people? And if you want to win people, you have to sometimes argue on their terms, and it's a lot more work. And if you know, you're just going to sit back and say, "Listen to me," because I say so. And that's the Misorah that you're passing on. Well, people are naturally going to be skeptical about it. There are a lot of rabbis running around out there. A lot of people saying a lot of stuff in the name, forget name of God. A lot of people saying stuff in the name of Judaism. Many of them are idiots. You might think I'm one of them. So how are you supposed to trust them? And I think the rabbis need to a priori have that approach where I'm going into a hostile crowd. It's my job to teach and my job to impart knowledge. And then you build trust, and then you have a real Masorah. And then you will find people not necessarily willing to push envelopes because there isn't one to push. They're going to follow that part of the Masorah, the tradition. Someone even asked me about my father's teacher, Chacham Fa'or, um, can be very, it's the good term, let's say acerbic in his writing. I happen not to be that way. And I explained, you know, I studied a great, I learned a great deal of Torah, either directly from him, mostly through my father. Didn't pick up the personality. Not my thing. Someone asked, oh, so does that mean that, so I don't write the way he does. Chacham Fa'or bashes Ashkenazim left and right. My father is a lot more careful in print for publication than he is speaking, right? But he is incredibly critical. That's not my style. That's not my personality. Does that mean I'm not following their Masorah? Of course not. Right? I'm following their halachic method. It's just I apply it slightly differently because based on my own personal disposition and based on what I think might either be more effective or more appropriate for my audience. Right? You can be part of a certain tradition in the capital T sense and still follow it in different ways. I mean, it's the Arba Amot of Halacha, which measures an area, not just a fixed line. Did that help at all or no? I don't know. The more I talk, the more quizzical you look. And yeah. <laughs> Am I not making Partly sense? I'm just getting flooded. But um, <clears throat> Is what I'm saying at least making rational sense? No, and it may be because oh. um, because I, I didn't get enough sleep. But That's possible. I mean, can, can, you, can you put the Musar of today's lesson in 50 words or less? Okay, uh, I will try that. You reduce it to a tweet. Uh, at least 150 characters. One, tradition important. Two, tradition can be flawed. All right? Three, how do you evaluate... In order to evaluate whether or not a tradition is invalid, you need to have some rules of an objective halakha, which, oddly enough, you must have gotten through a Masorah. Ironically enough, you itself got through a Masorah. Okay? Where it comes... So does tradition have a role in halakha? Absolutely. To what extent does it override other stuff? That's a little bit trickier, especially when you have a tradition to violate Jewish law. What does it mean to change a tradition in a certain way? There seems to be room. There seems to be room like where it seems to be okay, in some places not okay. I would summarize it as being a judgment call that may or may not be intrinsically part of the system itself as much as personal opinions over what's necessary and what's not necessary. Meaning... Like going back to that Gemara about the people who didn't go out on Erev Shabbat, that was a new minhag, right? So sometimes keep, sometimes things fall by the wayside. It's one, if you want to say, let's say even if you take it practice by, I would say, I would put it this way. It would seem to me untenable to say everything has to be kept in its pristine condition because that's not how things worked in the past. If we do have a tradition, it's a tradition of change. That's actually one of the names of Jacob Katz's books, Tradition and Change. Um, if you want to take things on a case-by-case basis, I would say you need to give an argument. Why, and this is by a case-by-case basis, I'm talking about an innovation, let's say that is never done before, that is neither obligatory nor violates Jewish law. 
meaning the status quo doesn't violate Jewish law, and this new innovation wouldn't violate Jewish law, but you're definitely doing a change in what has been the identifiable accepted practice, okay? Take those on a case-by-case basis, and you have to make the argument why this is worth changing, and you would have to make the argument why is it not worth changing. Few people are willing to sit down and have that discussion with the intent to convince people. The people who do typically just speak to people who already agree with them and say, well, of course, this is the way it must be because of blah, 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 you know, implicit in a whole bunch of other assumptions without sitting down and trying to rationally convince other people. But that's a separate issue that we'll probably get to in the class on development stuff. All right. There's a lot more than the 140 characters. True. But did that at least reduce it enough? Bullet points? Yeah. Okay. Uh, tradition, but, good. But Sometimes tradition, bad. Other times, case by case, and justify why you want to change and, keep, uh, and why you want to change and why you want to keep things the same. Yeah. Can I do any, I can't do any better right, than that. Right, All right. right. Have a great week.